uh, there's a lot of strategies out there where they perpetuate living off equity, um, which I think is just crazy and suicidal. Um, yeah, it's like death by butter knife. It's, it's slow but sure. But uh, I, yeah, for me, the, the strongest asset you can have is one with zero debt. That's when you're in, when you're in full control. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode on Property Investory, we're talking to buyer's agent and property advisor Steve Waters who has experienced the ups and downs of two property cycles including the negative effects of the GFC. Sometimes, everything that could go wrong did go wrong but seeing the results of compound growth has made it all worth it. Waters has fast experience in the property industry with his company continually growing over several property cycles. I'm a director of Wright Property Group and we're a full service buyer's agency and property advisory and we've been around for oh geez, nearly two property cycles now which I think in itself is, is quite pertinent. Uh, I've been investing since I think year 2000 and uh, anything that can go wrong has go wrong so a lot of the stuff that we talk about is actually based on what not to do because we've, we've experienced those mistakes. It's not just about uh, what you should do and, and theoretical, it's actually practical stuff that we've been through. We've got several offices, I think we've got what, four or five offices now based over uh, different states or the eastern seaboard of Australia and so what of my day now is is looking through properties, going through numbers, uh, managing staff and and making sure actually that you know, the numbers don't lie and that the strategies that we have created with our clients are actually being implemented. Uh, we're a little bit different from most buyers agencies, uh, being that we are a, a property advisory firm uh, where we create the strategy, the buyers agency side of us implements the strategy and then we have an ongoing review process for the years to come, three or four times a year and I, I think that's what sets us apart from most people uh, because at the end of the day, economies change, the price of money changes, consumer sentiment changes, people's own unique positions uh, change regularly. So their portfolios really should be able to be flexible and fluid with the changes around them at that time. And, and so sometimes we need to tweak those strategies so that uh, people stay on track. Mm. So I guess your your clients or your customers also are being accountable to you because you, you create the strategy all the way to actually execution, which is usually not very much heard of because most of the time people just aid in that process by offering services and, and referring people to do the things that they need to do. Is that true to say? Yeah, yeah, that, that's a fair point. And, you know, and once again, people's strategies need to change because their life situations change, whether it be via you know, new kids, marriage, um, or stressful situations. And so part of the strategies that we create is, is based around not just growth but also cash flow, uh, which we'll get to in a, a bit later on, I suppose. Um, and part of our reviewing process, uh, where as an example, we provide a, a live document uh, so that they can track their portfolios and we can see whenever they make changes so that we can actually help them help themselves manage their portfolio. Because I think too many people perhaps invest in property and think of it as this passive uh, investment vehicle and, and I'm so um, at the opposite end of the scale with that. Your property is not passive. It's something that needs to be worked on continually, whether that be managing your managers or 
replying to emails in terms of repairs and maintenance, checking the price of money, consumer confidence, where to invest next, so on and so forth. So the whole passive angle for me just doesn't just doesn't flow. That's just uh, I think that's a bit of a fallacy. When considering how he would describe himself as a property investor, Waters prefers to gauge the worst case scenario before proceeding. Yeah, I'm an I'm an active investor. Um, I, I yeah, there's there's buy and hold or buy and hope. As some people refer to it at. Uh, you need to be involved all the time, every day. Um, and yeah, that doesn't mean that it's a, it's a second job for you, but it's it's going to be that investment vehicle makes you a lot of money in terms of future wealth or it's going to cost you a lot of money and, and most people you know, who don't give it enough time or enough uh, perhaps worth are the ones that end up uh, losing the money. But my, my personal, I suppose, investor profile is, is one of that of a conservative type. Uh, I'm not that type of person that likes to roll the dice or, or you know, go red or black. For me, things have got to be pretty much set in stone and a lot of that is, is obviously based on forecasting and modelling and you know, modelling is just that, modelling. And so I need to look at the worst case scenario. Um, that lets me sleep at night. And if the worst case scenario still stacks up, uh, then I'm happy to, to go ahead with it. You know, it's not about what the property will do in today's market, which is what most people are thinking of and looking at. It's actually what the property will do in its worst case scenario. So when the market at its lowest ebb, um, how will that property perform then? And if it still ticks all the boxes, well, then... Yeah, that's when I'll go ahead. Growing up in a hard-working family in an industry where the end result is determined by numbers, Waters was unwittingly primed for his future involvement in property. Uh, I grew up in uh, well Sydney and, and regional New South Wales. My family had a had a um, an exporting livestock business, and so we were quite mobile, even though we were based in Sydney. And so I went to a boarding school for. For most of my life, actually, most of my younger life, my schooling life, uh, because the business was fairly mobile, um, and because of that industry being uh, exporting livestock or beef and, and lambs and sheep and what have you, um, I've never really been employed as such. I mean, there was a short period when I left school where I was employed by someone else with the same industry. But most of my time, I've been self-employed, and part of my, I suppose, background in that industry is that. Um, it's tuned me, for want of a better word, to, to concentrate on numbers, figures, uh, which you know, goes hand in hand with property. Everything's about the numbers, and so the emotions always out of it. And it, it, it even was back then. But um, look, I was fortunate growing up in a self-employed family where you, know, you took things perhaps a little bit more seriously than than others, because at the end of the day, the result was really um, produced by the effort you put in beforehand. His parents' involvement in property was more about a byproduct of their business as they needed the land. But that wasn't what inspired him to get into property investing. When I went on an extended holiday from the family business, um, I met my then girlfriend, now wife, and she was already investing. And she, I don't know, had a half a dozen properties under her belt at that time. And uh, she gave me a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad and said, look, read this and uh, yeah, come back to me, so to speak. And so I read the book, and I hadn't read a book even during school. I wasn't much of a scholar, so I didn't do a lot. But I read the book in the, over a weekend, um, and it all made sense to me. So I said to her, I said, look, the numbers, I need to see the numbers. And so she, she showed me the numbers of her portfolio, 
uh, and how she went about it. And I couldn't make the numbers fall over. And once again, everything was about numbers, even for me back then, down to the minutest details. And uh, so I said to her, look, all the numbers stack up, uh, go out and find me a property. And uh, this was early stages of our relationship, so I suppose it was more bluff and sort of than anything. And anyway, she came back in two days and said, I found you a property, and I went to water. It was it was just all too quick for me. Um, but by that stage, you know, having half a dozen properties under her belt, she was experienced. I wasn't. Uh, and uh, I went through with it and I bought a, I think it was the year 2000 or something like that anyway, I bought a, a three-bedroom house out in the Mount Druitt, Druitt district for $105,000. And uh, everything that could go wrong with that property in its initial stages did go wrong. I I couldn't get the loan when, or the loan was denied once it was approved, and then it was denied again, so I had to chip in more money. And then I decided to renovate it myself, and someone broke in, and they vandalised the property, and then I couldn't rent it out because I was the manager. I didn't want to give away any money to a property manager, and then I, so I couldn't find a tenant. But once I got all, over all those hurdles, I suppose, or more so my ego, and I gave it to a property manager, they rented it out pretty quick, smart, and in a hurry. And I was very, very fortunate, I suppose. The property doubled in value in 12 months. Um, it was rented out quite quickly, and I had the same tenants for, what was it, 15 years. So it ended up being a very, good, very, very good investment for me. And thanks to your wife, who was your, I guess you can say, first buyer's agent, would you per se? You know what? She, she was. She was my first buyer's agent. And, and I remember at the time, because I think it was on the market at $110,000, and, and she said she'd got it for one hundred and five. and yeah, you know, I, I was a little bit disappointed. I said, "You've only got five thousand dollars off on it. Like, <laughs> what's this about?" It's um, because once again, in the in the beef industry or in the export industry, you know, you negotiate all the time. And uh, she said, "Look, you know, sometimes it's not about how much you get off; it's about identifying value." And yeah, you know, at the time, it really didn't make a lot of sense to me. But now, as a you know, as a buyer's agent of such, um, yeah, that made makes total sense. You know, today it's about value; it's not about what you know what the asking price is. End of the day, that's just merely a guide. And look, she's a very smart investor, and you know, even even today with our very young family, um, you know, for our own portfolio, she adds to that. And you know, she recently we settled a property in Sydney, of all places. That um, you know, in the space of what has it been four months since we've owned it? Yeah, you know, she's she's been offered fifty percent more than what she paid for it in the space of four months. Yeah, so she's a she's a smart operator. I learn a lot from her. Although his future wife had inspired him to build his wealth through property, Waters doesn't feel as though he consciously chose to invest in property over other investment vehicles. To me, um, at you know, such a at that age and well, that stage in my life, it really wasn't about future wealth. The business, my family business, was my future wealth, and it was also cash flow. Um, I really, to be honest with you, didn't have my head around the fact that you know, property would be my vehicle or could be my vehicle for future wealth, um, even though. You know, I, uh, I toyed with the the idea of buying something beforehand. It was certainly not in the in the, the I suppose the scope of what you know what most people can see today. That's really into investing. So it was wasn't my choose, chosen vehicle. Uh, it was a vehicle that that chose me. I think more so than anything. And and as a result of that, it's it's just something that I've embellished to the point where I you know the family business no longer exists. It's uh, you know, it's all property and has been now. Well, maybe three years after I got into property, you know, I basically gave away the, the day job, so to speak, and just immersed myself into it because I'm—I suppose that's my personality. I'm—I'm all—I'm all or nothing. 
Water shares, the value or size of a portfolio is not really what matters. It's the actual yield percentage that makes the difference. Too many people uh, get hooked up or caught up in how many properties. And this, this, this cycle, this property cycle is very different from perhaps last property cycle where being technology is probably the key difference. Uh, and by that, I mean not the way that we research properties, not the way that we do our diligence, but it's more, more so... Uh, social awareness or being able to compare yourself to somebody else. So with social media that we have today, you, you can jump onto social media, read a magazine um, and see someone who's got you know, 400 properties, 100 properties, 400 properties, or three properties, whatever it may be. And human nature automatically benchmarks that, I suppose, and, and, and you strive for that. But what they don't tell you is the story behind it. You, know, you might have 100 properties, but they're all worth $30,000 each and they've got no equity or they've got you know, minimal cash flow. So for me, the number of properties is 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 quite irrelevant. Um, obviously, yield, cash flow is, um, and yeah, if we generally speak based on a percentage, but also uh, the the net worth or the, the the gross the gross value than your your net value, I suppose. And so coming back to to your question, uh, in terms of numbers, we're talking fifty or approaching fifty very quickly. Uh, in terms of, and I think this is the important point in terms of yield, I've got an average yield, obviously some higher, some lower, uh, of 11%, and I'm I'm pretty happy with that. Wow, that is fantastic. This is where the argument is, is how someone works out yield, because you know, the general rule of thumb is the gross cost divided by the annual rent, yeah? But how do you measure that as the years go on? And for me, I once the property in some people this is where I have I suppose discussions with accountants and what have you about how do you work out the the gross yield as time goes on and for me it's I like to do it based on the mortgage so once I've recycled my capital out of a property and its mortgage amount therefore its biggest biggest amount of expenditure um, I use the rent versus the debt uh, which is a key point because you don't want to be in a position where you you're raping and pillaging your property's equity forever and ever because you know there's got to be an end point somewhere Mm, that's right. And you've got to pay that off as well too, especially your, your mortgages as well in the portfolio. Well, that, yeah, well, I'm, I, I agree with that. That's a, it's a really it's a really strong comment. Uh, there's a lot of strategies out there where they perpetuate living off equity, um, which I think is just crazy and suicidal. Um, yeah, it's like death by butter knife. It's, it's slow but sure. But uh, I, yeah, for me, the, the strongest asset you can have is one with zero debt. That's when you're in, when you're in full control. Um, and once again, there's a lot of people out there who say, well, you know, you should keep your debt relative to its income and you know, so on and so forth. But no, nah, not for me. No debt. That's, that's the strongest position you can be in. Coming up after the break, we'll find out why Waters values cash flow so highly. The number is more about the cash flow you know, to, as you create your portfolio. How concentrating on equity and growth can hinder you from holding your properties? When you start to struggle, it's not just you. There's, there's thousands, hundreds of thousands of other property owners that are also struggling and that's where you get consumer sentiment start to shift on a downward downward trajectory, so to speak. And that's next. I'm Tyron Shah and you're listening to Property Investory. Hey, podcast listeners. Are you enjoying listening to these stories and want more? Then head over to propertyinvestory.com and subscribe to receive your free property case studies that I only send exclusively via email. Just one of the many benefits of being part of this community. 
These real case studies are from experienced property investors where they share specific numbers of their portfolio, their strategies, and much more. Simply visit propertyinvestory.com to get your free case studies. Now back to the show. Waters believes that rather than monitoring the fluctuating value of his portfolio, cash flow is more important. Your growth, your growth portfolio value is something that's very, very fluid. You know, it's up, it's down, it's sideways. And I, I just don't think that's a relative number. The number is more about the cash flow. Um, you know, to, as you create your portfolio, because there's three separate stages. There's obviously the, the creation part of your portfolio, um, then there's a consolidation and then there's a pay down figure. And it's when you start to pay down is where your net equity or your gross realisation portion starts to, uh, to kick in. He says concentrating on equity and growth potentially hinders investors from continuing to hold their properties. The support which a good cash flow provides also helps to support mortgage debt. Because this cycle is really only marginally different from last cycle, which was only marginally differently different from the cycle before, um, what people tend to think about as a, as a cycle reaches its sort of halfway position is they forget they forget about cash flow and how important it is. So they, they tend to concentrate on equity on growth uh, and you know forget about how they're going to service this debt. And this cycle's no different. So we're starting to see people talk about how much money they've made over the last 12 months and how much the property's grown over the last four years, even though the, the cash flow component might be absolute you know, rubbish at, say, 3 or 4%. And that's all good for while money's at 4.5% as an average in terms of the cost of your money. But when things get back to normality at that sort of 55 6% as a long-term average, and you don't have that cash flow, it leaves you in a position where you start to struggle. And when you start to struggle, it's not just you. There's there's thousands, hundreds of thousands of other property owners that are also struggling. And that's where you get consumer sentiment start to shift on a downward downward trajectory, so to speak. And people tend to unload their properties. And once one person does, two people does, do you get perpetual motion. And so you see a market start to retract. Cash flow is so important, and we're not talking about positive cash flow or positive gearing. I'm just talking about reasonable cash flow that helps you support your debt. It's so important because nobody or very few people have really lost their portfolios or they've been foreclosed upon, for want of a better word, for lack of equity. It's usually lack of cash flow. And so for whatever there's, there's an economy that that is perhaps at equilibrium in terms of consumer confidence and price of money and everything that goes around that, you actually need the combination of growth because that's your long-term wealth, but the cash flow is what helps you support the debt to get you to that point in time. Now, unfortunately, once again, people tend to forget about that. I fear that we're at that point of the economy now, or sorry, that point of the Sydney market, perhaps the Melbourne market, uh, where people are starting to perhaps concentrate on, or A, what they've missed out on in terms of growth and therefore dive into the market continually and forget about the cash flow component which will help support the debt. Mm, it's more of a greed thing because usually that's what happens. At the top of the cycle, people have seen what's happened to pe- previously people have succeeded and they go, oh, I feel like I'm missing out. So they end up jumping in and then... It's the other end of the market though as well. So if we talk about cash flow and those you know, that focus purely on positive cash flow, um, you, you can you know, you can have 20 properties that are positive cash flow and I mean money in, money out, 
um, say twenty dollars a week, that's four hundred dollars a week. But you might have zero growth, or you might have um, a high cost to operate. And a really good example of that is I've got uh, what is it, twenty three properties in in one regional area of New South Wales, and my cash flow out of that, my my gross yield, if you will, is sixteen percent, which is pretty sexy on the on the top line. But if I get and and mind you, so it's about sixteen percent gross yield. Plus, they've also doubled in value over the last, let's call it, six years. Um, which is, you know, when I when I throw that all into the pot, that sounds like a really good story. But let me tell you that if I have one stove break down, they've got three weeks rent or four weeks rent. So when I look at my net cost to operate, it's actually not that it's not that attractive, especially when you get a run of maintenance having so many properties in one town. With the emotional purchase of several off-the-plan apartments, in a beautiful area came Water's worst investing moment and hardest lesson learned. It's not only my worst um, investing select, investor or selection, but it's ended up to be my best as well. Um, and the, 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 <laughs> When I had my property that doubled in value, we actually went out that year and bought probably another seven or eight, I think it was, was, was in that year. Um, and then the next year we bought another, I don't know, let's call it 12, I can't remember now. But at that stage, you know, I actually thought I knew it all because there, were, there weren't people around like uh, us today, so to speak. There was, because the internet wasn't really uh, evolved, social media wasn't involved, and you had to do these high-priced courses where they flogged your stuff on the side, and I didn't get involved in that. So everything I did was trial and error. There was no one to hold my hand, so to speak, or, or more importantly, say, don't do that. So I went to this uh, this this place where they were selling an off-the-plan apartment up in the up in the central coast, and it overlooked the marina, it overlooked the water, everything was beautiful. And I said to my then fiance, now wife, let's buy a couple of these because yeah, we can come up here every second weekend and and really make use of it. And she, you know, to her credit, she said, yeah, why not? Let's not buy one, let's buy two. So we bought two. And they were off the plan and coastal town, tourism, service department. So everything that you shouldn't do, it, it ticked all those boxes. So service department, off the plan, on the water, tourism area. Yeah, it was a recipe for disaster. But we paid, I think it was $312,000, and this is where my mind gets a bit sketchy because it was so long ago, off the plan. When they completed, they vowed at... Um, or a year after completion, sorry, they vowed that I think it was around about 600000 which was just ridiculous. On the arrival of the global financial crisis, the problem worsened. Then they went back down to about 300000 or 250000 or whatever it was. But the, luckily, I sold one of them in that time. But the, the reason it was so, so bad is, and I won't mention the, the place because it's just that's just suicidal for my own, <laughs> my own hip pocket, but it, um, even today, 51 cents in every dollar that it creates in terms of income, rent, is taken by the management company, cleaning charges, um, knives, forks, spoons, light globes. So that's 51 cents out of every dollar. That does not take into account my mortgage, council rates, water rates, or strata. It is just horrific. Now, the, the good thing out of this story is that it taught me it, it was like a PhD for me, or you, know, you couldn't learn that in university. It was that was just how important it was a wake up for me in terms of 
ego and greed, which I think are the two biggest killers in any any business or any asset class, um, always showed me that cash flow is king, always, and that you, you can never steer clear of fundamentals, and, and this just didn't have any. And, um, you know, as I said, part of the reason we bought it was we were going to go up there you know, every couple of weeks. And let me tell you, I went up there, I think it was a month ago now, and that was the fourth time I've been there since I've owned it some 15 years. So it was just the worst investment ever. But good lesson. And I wouldn't know what I know today, nor would I have the portfolio that I have today if I hadn't have done that. Wow. It's like University of Hard Knocks. You really have to go through it. Well, that, that's how I'm painting it up anyway. It makes me feel better. <laughs> Seeing the effects of compound growth and witnessing the end results were Water's best aha moments. I think the aha moment that I that I had or and continually have is is growth. Is compound growth. And you know, being able to buy a property and then have a look at it in twelve months time or benchmark it against something that's comparable at that moment in time. It's just a it's a really cool feeling. Um, you know, I, I, I mentioned earlier on my wife just settled a property or we settled a property in Sydney, which is some acreage, uh, where we're offered 50% more within the space of three or four months of ownership. Like, you just don't get a better aha moment in terms of how good an asset class property is. Now, I know some people listening, they might say, yeah, that's all really good. You've got a lot of experience and you know, the market's hot, so to speak. But let me tell you that the aha moment in itself, you only get to know how good property is when you've experienced two or three cycles and you get to see a moment in time such as a GFC, which for us was a pretty obvious thing that was, was going to happen. We didn't know it was going to be called a GFC, but we knew that money was um, too readily available across the world and that asset classes were you know, were really being valued on, on say-so rather than, than fact. So... At that point in time, we said to our clients, look, get liquid because liquidity is the key to, to property is, is having lines of credit, offset facilities, redraws, something where you can tap your equity at a, at a moment in time. And we saw the GFC un, unfold and un, unpack itself, as some people would say. But we also knew that our asset class or where we invested more more particularly, um, that, yeah, we lost some value off our, off our asset being property because the world did and you know, we didn't lose a lot, uh, but what we did see happen and we knew was going to happen was that our income, so our rents, would actually go up in value because even though you have a, a, a an asset class that perhaps is experiencing a contraction, there are certain things that don't stop. And that, that thing is population growth, as long as you choose the right areas, and that be via immigration or naturally, whatever it may be. So therefore, accommodation is needed. And during the worst possible times in an economy, that's when you get a supply and demand shift in your favour if you've got the right area. So once again, population still expands, but construction stops. Therefore, accommodation um, stops or the supply of accommodation stops. And so you get a supply and demand issue that's in your favour. And once again, the GFC, our, our incomes, our rents rose by nearly 60% during that period of time. And it also, this is Sydney, and it also gave us a very unique opportunity once we hit, I think it was around about the 7 7.5% yield mark, uh, and we just loaded up and you know, for ourselves and our clients and throughout the whole Western Corridor, Sydney, we probably bought two, 3,000 properties. And now we reap the rewards. 
Definitely. I mean, like, yeah, it's it's it sounds like you, you guys were really, really well, well prepared for that. Yeah, but I think it was such an obvious thing that people had their blinkers on in terms of greed and ego. You know, sometimes the fundamentals, I'm not sorry, not the fundamentals, but sometimes the numbers just don't stack up. And when those numbers start to not stack up, you, you need to either stop and sit on your hands. And as an investor, that's probably the hardest thing, and you know this, is is actually not buying something. Sometimes the best thing for your portfolio is to sit on your hands and relax, consolidate, do nothing, and and wait for the next area to present itself. Whether that you know, whether that be for cash flow diversification um, or just perpetuation of your portfolio. You know, my thing is to, to our clients: you don't always need to be buying. So, inspired by a conversation with Steve Waters on his property investing journey. We'll continue the conversation in the future episode on property investry. We'll find out about how to apply his strategy. Now, the strategy evolves over time, but the one thing that's constant is that uh, I play, in inverted commas, in the affordable areas. His success habits for property investing? Is being involved. And being involved means immersing yourself into everything and anything about you know, your chosen vehicle, which is property. And that's next time in a future episode of Property Investory. Also, if you haven't subscribed to receive your free property case studies that I only send out exclusively via email, you can text me your email address to 0499881040 to subscribe. These real case studies are from experienced property investors where they share specific numbers of their portfolio, the strategies and much more. Simply text me your email address to 0499881040 to get your free case studies. Thanks for listening.